So I started walking with Jesus probably... My wife always makes fun of me because I don't, don't get dates right, but I get our anniversary right. But um, I think I started walking with Jesus probably 15 years ago. And honestly, at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember walking into a local Christian bookstore. This was before Lifeway. At least I didn't know they existed. But walked into a local Christian bookstore and telling the girl who was helping me, I said, I want some kind of devotional, something I can go through, something I can read. Like I, I know that's kind of what I'm supposed to do. I hear everybody talk about this quiet time thing. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. And so I was like, can you help me find something I can read every morning? And she said, well, who's your favorite Christian author? And I was like, Jesus? Like, I don't know who my favorite Christian... I don't, I don't know any authors. I don't know any Christian authors. And so she gave me this, you know, this stack of books. And she goes, here's some books that you could, you could probably start with. And um, one of the books, the one I actually bought, was My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers, which I still enjoy. I don't know that it's you know, a full morning devotional, but it's just so solid, so many good points of wisdom in there. And then one of the other books I got shortly thereafter was a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And anybody ever read that? Knowing God, J.I. Packer? So, three of you. Um, So I, I started reading it, and admittedly, at the time, now keep in mind where I was in my walk, but at the time it was a, it was a tough read. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't understand what he was saying, it's that I didn't know I liked what he was saying. Like I just wasn't quite sure if I agreed with it. Um, you know, I didn't know if I bought into it. You know, at one point he's talking about knowing God, like genuine worship and what it means to know the Lord, what it means to give him the honor and the praise that he's due. And I don't know what it was. Well, I do know what it was. It was probably pride. But, I, you know, something inside of me that bothered me. The idea that I had to worship somebody. The, wor- the idea that I had to worship the creator. I know it sounds ludicrous, but at the time I just, I couldn't, I, didn't, I just didn't know all that that entailed. Like, does he expect me to walk a certain way? Does he expect me to follow him and be obedient to him and trust him when I don't even see the end of the road? Like, you know, I know that sounds good on paper. When I first commit my life to him, but when the rubber hits the road, when I'm living it out, it's a, you know, sometimes it's a little different story. And honestly, I had a little crisis of faith, if you will. And I realize that's not a big, as far as crisis of faith goes, that's probably not a big one. But for me, early in my walk, it was, you know, it was a little crisis of faith. And I, you know, it was like this spiritual battle. There was a fork in the road. There was a spiritual battle going on and I didn't know which path I was going to take. And that, I mean, that happens often, I think, in life. And I was in Michigan a while back. I have some clients in Michigan, so I'm there probably eight to ten times a year. And I don't know if you've ever been to Michigan. It's a beautiful state. But it's got, these got sand dunes. So they've got these sand dunes in different parts of the state that come off Lake Michigan. And I don't know if you ever tried to hike a sand dune, but it's kind of hard to hike a sand dune at times. It's like you're, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, sometimes there's grass, sometimes there's the occasional tree and shrub, and, but you're, you know, for the most part, it's like hiking in a desert, right? And a lot of times you're going uphill, so it's just kind of difficult. So I'm walking along. I wanted to see Lake Michigan, so I was walking along this, you know, this little sand dune, and I come upon this little path, all right? And it's, I have a picture of it. Like pictures, so I took a picture of it. And it's, you know, you have this little path here. So picture yourself walking along a sand dune. You kind of look over, and there's this little path, and you can't quite see 
over the ridge. You can't quite see over the hill. So I don't know about you. Some of you may just keep on walking and ignore it, but I'd like to see what's on the other side, right? There's like a nice little path and I wanted to see what was on the top of the height. So I figured when I got up there, you know, I'd take maybe that 50 foot walk and get up there and then I'd see some beautiful scenery like you always picture. Um, And I got to the top and I realized it was just the beginning. Right, So I kind of underestimated where I was. And so you kept going and there was ups, there was downs, there were forks in the road, there was literally dead ends at times where you, know, you still couldn't quite see what was over there. And you come like, all right, the path stop, I'm going to jump over here to this path and keep on going. So you're, you know, you're trying to get along. And finally, you know, I get to the very end, there's one last fork. And I was like, all right, I'm going this way, I go this way. And I come to the top of this hill. And you get to the top of the hill and you look over. And I took another picture because it's like this beautiful sunset on Lake Michigan. Right For us, you know, it might look like the Gulf of Mexico, but this is, it's hard to explain if you've never seen Lake Michigan. It's just, it's really beautiful. You can't see the other side. I mean, it's, it's pretty spectacular at times, especially when the sun is setting. So, you know, I, I actually have that first picture, if you can go back, as my background on my computer at work. And the reason I have it there is because I think it's a reminder for me of our faith. It's like it's this reminder that life is full of ups and downs, There's forks in the road. Sometimes you can't see what's on the other side. You can't see what's over the top of the hill. Occasionally, you'll even have this crisis of faith. And the path is narrow, right? Jesus tells us that. The path is narrow that leads to life. It's difficult at times. But in the end, it's worth it. And I realize we're not at the end yet, but we have hope that at the end of life, it's worth it. And we trust That God is who he says he is. And at the end, there's a lot more than a beautiful sunset. Would you agree? So today we're going to study, continue our study through the book of Samuel. And David comes to one of these points in his life. I wouldn't call it a fork in the road, but he just comes to, I would say, is a crisis. And it's one of the first crises I think we've seen in the life of David. All right, it's a crisis, and you don't really know what he's going to do. He's at a crossroad. He's going to go this way. He's going to go this way. You don't know what he's going to do. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and let's jump in. If you're new with us, we preach through books of the Bible. We've been in Samuel since January, so we're making our way through. We're hoping to be done, you know, depending upon how quickly Jake preaches, hoping to be done maybe um, second, third week of December. And if we go through Christmas, we go through Christmas. So, you know, the word will dictate how long we go. But we're already in Second Samuel, all right? Israel, if you don't know much about Samuel, Israel has demanded a king, right? They transitioned from the time of the judges, came into the promised land. They transitioned from the time of the judges where God ruled through these judges. It was like a theocracy is what it's called. He ruled through judges. They said, no, we want a king. We look around, we see all these other countries with kings. They're being ruled by kings. The way we're doing it is you raise up a judge at the last minute to deliver us like Samson. He's crazy. We don't even know what's going to happen. The last minute we're scared to death. You raise him up. Yeah, we're delivered. But we don't like that feeling. It's a little, it's a little nerve-wracking at times. We want a king. The other countries have kings. They have militaries. It's very clear what's happening. We know who's in charge. We know who's in control. Give us a king. So God said, all right, you're going to have a king. He explained to them why that might not be the best move. But he gave him a king. First king was King Saul. We learned all about King Saul in 1 Samuel. Now we've come to 2 Samuel. King Saul is dead. David is assuming the throne. He's coming in to the throne. And last week, if you remember, he went into Jerusalem. 
There was a group that had been there for probably 500 years, the Jebusites. They pushed the Jebusites out, took over control of Jerusalem. It was going to be his capital city, the capital of all of Israel. All right, and so we're going to pick up right here in verse 1. So 2 Samuel 6, 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So that's a... that's a lot to deal with in two verses, it's, you know, especially if you're just coming into this for the first time. It's just, there's a lot there. And so I think it's important if we spend just a little time learning about the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Because I think for most of, I won't say most, for many of us, our knowledge of the Ark of the Covenant comes from Indiana Jones. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how we got our, that's how we learned. Am I the only heathen that's ever watched Indiana Jones? But this is what we've learned about Indiana Jones. So, now here's the deal. The movie is way off base. All right, it's just, I won't even digress. It's way off base. But believe it or not, their depiction of the Ark of the Covenant, like the way it looks, is actually pretty accurate. And I have a picture. Don't say we didn't learn anything in church today. Um, Harrison Ford. Ark of the Covenant. It's actually pretty, pretty close. That's kind of what we'd think it would have looked like. It would have the, the, the brackets, the circles there where the poles could be on. They're picking it out right there. I actually have a picture from an Old Testament commentary, which looks pretty close. I figured you might like the first one better. So that's the one we're going we're gonna to look at. But here's the deal. Why would David, the first thing he does, all right, let me reread that first verse. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there, the Ark of God. So he comes, into, he comes into Jerusalem, he establishes Jerusalem as kind of his capital, and the first thing he wants to do is go get the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Why is that important? Well, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is where the people would meet with God. All right, it was the single most significant item, and I did say item, single most significant item in the history of Israel. All right, it represented God's presence with his people. All right, it was constructed during the days of Moses back in Exodus. It was essentially a box made out of acacia wood, and it was layered in gold. So it was really completely plated in gold. And on the top was a seat. It was called the mercy seat. And then there were two angels, as you can see, cherubim, that would hang over the mercy seat. Inside the ark was Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments, and a jar of manna. Right from the desert wandering. So that's what was inside the ark. Now the ark itself sat inside the Holy of Holies, which was inside the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was like a, like a portable temple. So it sat inside, eventually it would sit inside, yeah, here's a picture of the, the tabernacle. At least we think that's what the tabernacle might look like. Later on it would sit inside the temple, but Solomon would build the temple. The temple hasn't been built yet. So this is kind of the portable temple, if you will, during this time. So and what's crazy is one day a year, okay, think about the Ark of the Covenant, it's inside the Holy of Holies. One day a year, the high priest would go inside the Holy of Holies. One day. And he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And before he could even go in, he had to go through this series of rituals. He washed his hands, had to bathe, had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. There were goats involved, which is where we get the word scapegoat. I mean, there's, there's all these different things that, were, that would take place on the Day of Atonement. Jewish tradition, this is not biblical tradition, but Jewish tradition says they would actually tie like a rope 
around the high priest's foot. So if he hadn't atoned for his sins properly and he was in there and he got struck down, they could actually pull him out without having to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay? Again, that's kind of extra biblical information. So the ark is a big deal. Okay? And if that's not big enough, Exodus 25, God is laying out the instructions way back when he's writing Exodus. He's laying out the instructions for how you would build the ark. And here's what he tells Moses. There above the corner, or excuse me, the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law. All right, hold on, let me read this again. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all of my commands for the Israelites. All right, such an important phrase. I will meet with you. And the reason that's important is before Jesus came, before Jesus hung on a cross and paid the penalty for sins, Before that took place, if Israel wanted the presence of God, that's where it happened. The Ark of the Covenant. That is is where it happened. The Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was the one place on earth where God could dwell among his people. It's not to say they couldn't pray. It's not to say there wasn't other ways to communicate with God. But that was the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies is the one place he would dwell among his people. So fast forward from Exodus all the way to 2 Samuel. David's on the scene. David comes in. He establishes his capital in Jerusalem, pushes the Jebusites out. The first thing he wants to do is bring God into the city. I want God in this city. So he's like, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Like, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. It's like, I want this central location where everybody can worship. And he's like, if, if that's not here, then we can't worship. Right? I mean, it seems obvious. If God's not here, we can't worship. All right? So let me ask you a question before we go any further. Before we carry on with this, do you want the presence of God in your life? It's not a trick question. Do you want the presence of God in your life? And it seems like a ridiculous question because of course we do. But here's the thing. When you, David doesn't just want to rule, to work, to live, to play. He doesn't want to do all these things without knowing that God is with him. Everything he does. And you've seen it throughout Samuel. Saul dies. If I was in those shoes, I'd have just gone and been king. God already anointed me as king. I already knew I was going to be king. I was just waiting for Saul to die. Saul dies. And what we read is, David prays to God, should I go up? Well, of course you should go up. You're the next king. But that David always wants to be seeking counsel and seeking wisdom in everything he does from God. And unfortunately, I think for so many of us, me included... Sometimes we use God as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It's just kind of like, all right, when I'm in trouble, come, come right here. When I'm in trouble, I need you right here next to me. But when things are going good, go ahead and give me the reins. I'm sure there's other people in this room that need you. Go ahead and give me the reins. I got this for a little while because things are going good. We don't, we don't really need to pray. I don't really need your presence for a while. But when things go bad, I don't know where you are, Lord, but I need you right back here, Right? I mean, we, we probably could all relate to that to some extent. I mean, it's the same dilemma I had 15 years ago. Do I want, do I want a commitment to the Lord or I just kind of want to use them when I need them? Like that J.I. Packer book, Knowing God, said this is what a relationship with God looks like. And I was like, I don't know if I want that. Like I wanted it over here, but then when you had push comes to shove and you actually have to live it, do I want the presence of God all the time? 24 7, 365. All right, David does, so he sets out to get the ark. Verse 3 And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. 
And Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart, and the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. So this entourage, this 30,000 people, probably more than 30,000 if women and children went, but this huge caravan of people go all the way over to the house of Abinadab. They carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab. So the next obvious question is, who in the world is Abinadab? Right? Why is the Ark of the Covenant not in the Holy Why is it at Abinadab's house? Right? So they make this cart and they go find it. Well, here's, here's the thing. At one point in Israel's history, probably 50 years ago, we don't know exact dates, but probably 50 years earlier, the Israelites decided that God was their good luck charm. We studied this, 1 Samuel. Right? They were going into war, and the sons of Eli, remember they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They said, we're going to take the, I mean, why would we not want God to go with us? Let's take him into battle. So they thought taking him was taking the ark. So they took the entire ark into battle, which obviously wasn't a good idea. It got captured by the Philistines, right? And the Philistines said, let's take this ark and we'll take it into our temple. So they brought it into their temple. And after seven months, a lot of weird things happened. We read about that. You know, their, their gods, their idols' heads were falling off. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things that happened to the Philistines. The Philistines were like, get this thing out of here. Like, this ark, we don't want it anymore. I don't know what it's about. So they book into a cart. There's two cows on the front of the cart, and they're like, go. They send it kind of in the general direction of Israel and figure it could get there. So it just heads out. And eventually the ark makes it. Obviously, God was intervening. The ark makes it all the way on the back of this cart being pulled by two cows. It makes it over to this little town just inside Israel called Beth Shemesh. So it gets into Beth Shemesh. And of course, if I saw the Ark of the Covenant coming down the road, and I was an Israelite, and I was like, what in the world is that? There's two cows, and there is that the Ark of the Covenant? That is the Ark of the Covenant. What in the world? I would want to look inside, right? You've never been able to look inside. It's always been in the Holy of Holies. Like, I want to see what's inside the Ark. So they do what most of us would probably do. They go to look inside, and that was not a good idea. Okay, verse 19 of 1 Samuel 6. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Which, by the way, is probably the most important question you'll ever hear. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? This holy God. And they're basically like, okay, let's get this ark out of here. We don't want it. So they say, to whom will the ark go up from here? We don't want it anymore. So eventually the ark makes its way to the house of Abinadab, where we don't know where it is, probably the barn in a storage room, collecting dust, like stuff in y'all's house, right? It's just kind of in the back. 50 years, the ark of the covenant is in Abinadab's house in the back. Now David comes in to be king. He's like, I want the ark. So they go find the ark. And somebody was like, it's at Abinadab's house. So he takes these 30,000 people to Abinadab's house. The massive entourage gets there. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. So he gets to the house. Uzzah and Ahio, his Abinadab's son, say, okay, come on. This is where the ark is. They put it on this, this cart, this new cart that they made. And they take it out. Um, and they have this big celebration. It's like a Super Bowl party headed for Jerusalem. All right, verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor, so this whole caravan of people, including the ark of Nakun, Uzzah, Abinadab's son, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there besides the ark of God. So middle of the parade, everything's going fine, everybody's being crazy, the oxen stumble, the ark goes down, Uzzah reaches out to try to grab it. Puts his hand out, try to stop it from falling on the ground, and he's struck dead. And I gotta be honest with you, when I first read verse 7, when I said when it said that, it bothered me a little. I, I was I was a little upset. Like, are you serious? Like the ark is going to fall to the ground. He reaches out innocently to try to stop it from falling, and boom, he's dead. Right? I mean, if if I was in his, if anybody was in his shoes, we would have done the same thing. You're walking next. To, I mean, just human nature, right? You're just walking next to the ark. It goes to fall. Whoa, psh, done, dead. He's not frustrated. He has no ill will. He's not angry. He's not crying out against God. He's not hitting things. He's celebrating. This is a celebration of God. This is a parade for the Ark of the Covenant. Like, wouldn't you think God would be happy about this? Wouldn't you think God would be happy that this is happening? They're bringing him back, his presence, his Ark of the Covenant, back into Jerusalem to kind of make it the center. He can dwell, his presence can dwell with his people. Like, wouldn't you think that he would be okay with this? Even David's mind is blown. Verse 8, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Almost the same question the people at Beth Shemesh were asking. How can the presence, if you think of the ark as the presence of God, how can the presence of the Lord come to me? That's what David's saying. So David, verse 10, was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So David wouldn't even take the ark into Jerusalem. This parade's going along. Uzzah dies. He's like, get that thing out of here. Like, I don't, I don't, we're not taking it to Jerusalem. I don't want it anywhere near us. Take it over to this guy's house, Obed, Edom. And so that's what he does. And I mean, I think we could all at least understand some of his frustration. King David. I mean, I'm not saying you would agree with him, but you at least can understand why he's a little frustrated. You can understand why, why he's confused. But here's the deal. Before you feel too bad for him, you have to realize there were rules surrounding the ark. Very specific rules surrounding the ark. For starters, only the priests were allowed to transport the ark. And while it was being moved, there was this leather covering that would go over the top of it so it, was, it wasn't exposed. And you couldn't move it on a cart. The Philistines moved it on a cart. You remember that? They put it in a cart... They moved it back. So the, the Israelites probably thought, David probably thought he was doing a good thing, and we'll build it a new cart, because it was on an old cart. Well, you couldn't even move it on a cart. That, that wasn't, there were rings in the corners. We have this picture again. There were rings in the corners so that the, the priests could hold it on poles. So nobody would come into contact. That's why they carried it, so it wouldn't be touched. Right? The oxen can fall, but the men are there just to kind of secure it and make sure it doesn't. So here's the deal. When David brings the ark the way he did, into Jerusalem, it appears to be this amazing act of worship and honor. Oh, David, you're so good. Thank you. You know, the Lord's going to be indebted to me for doing this. You know, it's such, a, it's such a good act. But in reality, they were desecrating it every step of the way. I mean, that, that's what was happening. And when the ark fell and Uzzah reached out his hand to stop it, he figured, my hands are cleaner than the dirt. God said, no, they're not. Your hands are not cleaner 
than the dirt. My laws weren't meant to keep the ark pure from the earth. My laws were meant to stop the touch of a dirty human hand. That's why the laws were in place. R.C. Sproul says, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would, make, that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of a sinful man. God did not want his holy throne to be touched by that which was in rebellion to him. That's heavy. Am I right? I mean, that's, that's, that's heavy. It's hard to swallow. And it was hard for David to swallow as well. But, I mean, here's the deal. Scripture very clearly laid out what they needed to do. There was no wiggle room. Scripture made it very clear. Here's what you need to do. And for some reason, David thought, hey, if I just do it this way, everything is going to be okay. I'm, I'm not going to obey what God said. I'm just going to kind of do it my own way. I'm going to do it this way. And I'm going to be able to get away with it. But that's not a loving father. Right? I have a four-year-old, Isabella. And she has a really hard time with authority. I know that sounds weird at four. But she has, I mean, and I'm not just saying this, but like my son who's six, he does too, like every six-year-old does, but it's just, it's different. When you watch the two of them, it is, it is different. And I'm sure my mother is secretly celebrating the fact that I have a child with an authority problem because I may have had one too. But anyway, if, if Isabella is in trouble and you look her straight in the eye, she hits her brother or something, you look her straight in the eye and say, get over here and sit right here because I'm going to talk to you. She'll come over and she'll sit over there. Every time. And if you say, I saw that, go sit in the chair. She'll walk over and she'll sit on the floor. And I'm not even lying. Every single time. I'm like, how do you even think of these things? Like you're two feet away from the chair. I say, get in the chair. You're scared because you just did something wrong. And instead, you just go sit on the floor. Like it's like, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even understand it. But every single time, she's going to do that. And I can either say as a father, whatever, close enough. Or... I can help her understand what it means to obey. Right? And it may seem petty at four, but I hope it's setting the tone for the rest of her childhood years and also setting the tone for the rest of her life. And the same is true with God. His work has to be done His way in order to get His blessing. His work has to be done His way in order to get His... So David goes back to Jerusalem. Three months go by. He's back in Jerusalem. Three months go by. And it's almost, we don't know what he's doing in these three months. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's almost like he's working through this in his head. Like you can almost picture it. We know that because when he does it the second time to go get the ark, he does it very differently. So something happened in those, those three months. I don't know if he was praying or researching or talking to people or reading or talking to priests. But something happened. He's probably literally trying to figure out the answer to the question, how can the presence of God come to me? Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark, or the ark of God. And David's like, let's go get it. It's blessing this guy. Let's bring it back home. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So essentially, they go back different place. Now they're at this guy's house, not Abinadab's or Obed-Edom's house, but it's the same celebration, the same, you know, charade. They go back there, the parade happens, but it's different this time. Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord, bore the ark, it was being carried, 
those who bore the ark of the Lord. And we know it was carried because there's parallel, there's parallel commentaries. First Chronicles parallels First Samuel, Second Samuel very closely. So you can read all of this in First Chronicles. We won't do it for time, but you know it's being carried. You know it's being carried by priests because it's very clearly laid out in First Chronicles. All right, so when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So the priest gets the ark, they're carrying it, you know, all right, let's go. One, two, they get six steps and David's like, wait, we need to sacrifice. And I'm sure they're like, really? <laughs> like, but he said they needed to sacrifice. And eventually they make their way all the way to Jerusalem. And it says David is overwhelmed. We don't know why he's dancing. He's just overwhelmed at the presence of the Lord. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which was like a priestly garment. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his own house. So if you step back and think about it, we have two different trips into Jerusalem, at least attempts to get into Jerusalem, but they end up very different, right? So what's the difference between the two? I mean, obviously there's some details like the priest holding it instead of the army. There's some very specific details that can't be overlooked, but the biggest difference in my mind is a priest is offering a sacrifice, Right? They begin and end the journey with the priest offering a sacrifice. How can we come into the presence of the Lord through a sacrifice? Right? Through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. I was reading this week about the cross, and I know we've heard all kinds of things about the cross, but I was reading about the cross, and one author said the crucifixion was meant to do two things. Inflict maximum pain to whoever was, being on, whoever was on the cross and showcase a person's shame. It was meant just to shame them. All right, the person on the cross, they would have holes obviously in their hands and their feet. And so they would have to pull themselves up to breathe. It was obviously very hard and they would force pressure on the wounds that they would have. And you know, the torment, even for a Roman, was almost unbearable to watch. I mean, they were like immune to this kind of stuff, but it was almost unbearable even for them to watch. The Roman author Cicero said that when the Romans crucified women, which they did, they would actually crucify them backwards so you didn't have to see the pain on their face. You didn't have to, have to watch their agony. And this was the punishment and the pain put on Jesus to pay for the penalty of our sins. And here's the thing, it's brutal and it's disgusting, but it was a reminder. I mean, the reason it was so bad is because it was a reminder of how God simply cannot allow sin into his presence. You see it all through the Old Testament. It just cannot allow sin. And for Uzzah, here's the deal, for Uzzah who stuck out his hand and touched the ark to try to stop it, what, what might seem to us to be this senseless death, this senseless death by maybe like an oppressive God, 
is actually, it's a reminder of how holy he really is. That, that's what it is. This story, it's not about Uzzah. This story is about God. And this story is a reminder for us of just how holy he is and how someone can actually come into his presence. Like if, if that can't happen and I can't even get that, I mean, David's like, how can I come into the presence of God? And then David got it. Sacrifice. He was sacrificed. And it was like a foreshadowing of what would come on the cross. And the beauty is, unlike Uzzah, everyone in this room has an opportunity to turn to him. Everyone in this room has the opportunity to look to Jesus and say, I know you are paving the way for me to have a relationship with God, to experience the presence of God. And David might not have understood all of that, but you can see that David understands at least a little bit because he's overwhelmed. He's like, man, God is merciful. God is just. God is, God is going to be here. His presence is here. And he just has this overwhelming joy. He doesn't know what to do. And he's just dancing. He's dancing in the street as this is coming in. Max Lucado has a book called The Applause of Heaven. And he talks about this kind of this process as a believer. It's almost probably the process I went through years ago, 15 years ago, as I'm kind of thinking through all of this. But he says, it's this understanding that we, we actually truly begin to see who God is. And it's we finally see what he, who he really is, that he deserves our worship. He deserves our praise. And he said, it's a process. And he gives the, he gives the example I thought was fascinating. He gives the example of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, there is joy in every single one of these steps in the Sermon on the Mount. There's more joy and more joy as it goes on. But here's what he says. He says, first, we recognize we're in need. We're poor in spirit. Next, we repent of our self-sufficiency. All right, Lord, you can have the reins. I've tried to take this on myself and I can't. So we repent of our self-sufficiency. We mourn. Then we quit calling the shots and surrender control to God. We're meek. Grateful for his presence, we yearn for more of him. We hunger and thirst. As we grow closer to him, we become more like him. We forgive others. We're merciful. We change our outlook. We're pure in heart. We love others. We're peacemakers. And finally, we endure injustice. We're persecuted. And he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is the one that's working in you and making these changes once you commit to Christ. But he says the more radical the change, the greater the joy. The more radical the change you have, the more you pursue him, the more you focus on him. It's like, David, you don't even care who's watching. You don't care what's happening. Like, I am so focused on him. And Max Lucado says, he goes, guess what? This is within your reach. Everyone in this room is one decision away from joy. And it's interesting is all over this room, you kind of hear this very differently, right? You kind of hear what I'm saying. It's differently. Some of you, you embrace it. You're like, man, I take that to heart. Like that's just, that, that, that really gets me. And for others, maybe you're not sure, quite sure what to do with it. Okay, well, what do I even do with that? And maybe for others, both inside and outside the church, you're like, I don't even know if I want to devote myself to the Lord at all. And you see, you, see, and you have two people here, David, overwhelmed. Mickle, his wife, she despises him for his worship. She said she looked out the window when he was coming in and she despised him in her heart. She didn't want anything to do with it. 
All right, so here's the deal. Verse 20, we'll wrap up. And David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And here's the thing, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. And by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, to be clear, David probably wasn't, like, he wasn't completely naked. He had clothes on. He probably had just taken off his priestly garments, maybe his royal robe, and he had on, you know, clothes. But to her, to Mickel, the fact that she, he would make himself like the common man. He would dance in the street. He would just worship the Lord. No priestly garment on, probably no royal robe on. Probably. Like she's like, why? What? Like, what are you doing? The people will look at you differently. They'll think you're weird. He was dancing unrestrained, and she's like, that's that's not what a king does. That's not becoming of a king. And she was worried. Here's the deal. She was worried what others would think. At the end of the day, she watched David worship, and she was worried what others would think. How often do we consider our image above our devotion to God? You with me? How often do we like consider our own image over our devotion? You see, David didn't care what anybody thought about him. All that mattered was what God thought about him. It's all that mattered to David. You know, so is that, let me ask you this, is that you? You worried about what others think of you? What will others say? What if I start going to church? What if I go regularly? What if I join a church? What if I give my life to Jesus? What will, what will my friends think? Like, what will people say about me? God, I don't, I don't, I don't know. All right, you see people in church raising their hands during worship. You're like, why would they do that? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. Or maybe you don't like sharing Jesus because you don't want to be that guy or that girl. Like, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't want people to think I'm weird. Or, you know, maybe you're worried about losing control. I don't want to give the reins away. I still want to hold these. Whatever it is, let me assure you, we all have a tendency at times to be like Mickle. Not all the time. But we all have this tendency where our pride creeps back in. And I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to get looked at weird. You know, and here's the deal. One day, everybody in this room will stand before the Creator. And we'll all fall down on our faces and worship. And I can promise you, you're not going to care what anybody else thinks. You're not going to be looking around saying, I wonder what they, you know, what are, we're all going to be on our faces. We're all going to be worshiping. All right, we're going to take communion here in a few minutes, and the guys can start passing that out. But as you prepare your heart for communion, I want you just to think about a few questions. All right, and obviously, you know, however the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, that's how you should, that's how you should pray. That's how you should seek Him. But just a couple other areas of thought. Is there an area of pride in your life, like Mickle, that you need to deal with? Lord, I really don't want to do that. I know I'm not doing this area. I'm not, I'm not obedient, obedient here because I really care what people think about me. I'm not taking a stand. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Give that to the Lord. All right, is there a sin in your life that's affecting the presence of God? When you're a believer, now think about this. When you are a believer, the presence of God 
is inside of you in the Holy Spirit. Like, think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament had to do all these things to get to the presence of God. One day a year, they could go into the Holy of Holies. You have the Holy Spirit in your life 24-7. But sin can sometimes hinder that relationship. So is there unconfessed sin in your life that you need to deal with? And then lastly, how can you celebrate God on a daily basis? How can you celebrate the goodness of God, like David, on a daily basis? Go ahead and bow your heads, and we'll come back in a couple minutes. You know, it's interesting, after David brought the ark into Jerusalem, he offered a sacrifice, and then they celebrated with a meal. 2 Samuel 6, 19 says, He gave a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Everybody in Jerusalem got this meal. And it's such a beautiful picture because it's like God has come to his people and they eat a meal in his presence. Like that's, that's the picture. And if you look through scripture, breaking bread is such a, such a huge part of scripture. And what's amazing is one day, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ will share a meal together with Christ called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
We will share a meal together in the presence of God. And that's something, that's an amazing thing to look forward to. But until that day, we break bread together like this. Communion. All right, Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake. There was a young boy and his friend. It was in the evening. They were kind of looking over this pond. And they could see the reflection of the moon in the pond. It was kind of glistening over this, this pond. You know, you've probably seen that before. You look into a pond, you can see the reflection of the moon. And one of the boys picked up a stone. He threw it into the water. And ripples started going over the surface. And the younger boy was confused. And he said to his older friend, he's like, what happened to the moon? Like, I I can't see the moon anymore. And he looked at his young friend and he said, when you can't see the moon in the pond, stop looking at the pond and look up at the moon. You'll realize the moon hasn't gone anywhere. It's been there all along. I feel like sometimes when you hit those forks in the road, you walk that narrow path, you feel like you hit a dead end, you feel like there's ups, you feel like there's downs, you feel like all these different things have happened. Look up. Always keep your eyes up worshiping the Lord. The kids and I were in the outside this morning and we saw this rainbow. I don't know if anybody saw it. There's a rainbow, almost a full rainbow in the sky. And I was sitting there and I was just thinking about that. I was like, what a, what a great reminder. What a great promise that God never changes. Always keeps his promises. I'm going to finish with Lamentations 3. 3.23 and 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray.